Matthew chapter 24, Esther chapter, tw- Esther chapter 1, new book, and Acts chapter 24. Uh, let me begin uh, just with a word of prayer uh, for you and for me. Heavenly Father, help us, uh, whoever's listening, and especially for, for myself as I read the Bible today, to be able to understand what we are looking at, to internal- internalize it, to apply it, and to love this word that you're speaking to us um, as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thank you again for joining me. This is live. Uh, today is Sunday, and I hope it's been a good day for you. Uh, if you're a Christian, you probably spent this morning uh, going to church um, well, online. <laughs> Not very different from this, but probably with other friends and being encouraged in your local church and hearing from your leaders. Um, explain the Bible and encourage you with God's word. And really what this is, is to encourage this to encourage you, sorry, to continue doing this yourself, you know, in your own walk with God, to hear God's word as you read the Bible daily. And so that's all we do every day. I just read the Bible and just share my thoughts with you. These are really just reflections. Um, I haven't really given it the kind of in-depth analysis and background preparation as um, many leaders and pastors probably would with their sermons this morning. Um, so do bear with me. I do apologize for that. Uh, but this is really just my first impressions. So please do feedback to me if you feel differently or if you notice something that I could learn from as well. So let's, uh, having said all that, let's move on to uh, the first reading, Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife, and her name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leomim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of of Abraham's concubines. While he still lived, he sent them away <coughs> from Isaac, his son, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Abraham gave up his spirit and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is near uh, Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the children of Heth, or the Hittites. Abraham was buried there with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Isaac lived by Beer, Lahai, Roy. Now this is the history of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to the order of their birth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebaioth, then Kedar, Adbeel, Mipsan, uh, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their nations. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He gave up his spirit and died and was gathered to his people. They lived from Havilah to Shur, that is from Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He lived opposite all his relatives. This is the history of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian, to be his wife. Isaac entreated Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. Yahweh was entreated by him, and Rebekah's wife conceived. The children struggled together within her. She said, If it is like this, why do I live? She went to inquire of Yahweh. Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people will be stronger than the other. The elder will serve the younger. 
when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over, like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. After that, his brother came out, and his hand had hold on Esau's heel. His name, he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old uh, when she bore him, bore them. The, the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he ate his venison. Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob boiled stew. Esau came in from the field and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some of that red stew, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. He swore to him. He sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank, rose up, and went his way. So Esau despised his birthright. Hmm. What do we learn from this? I'm seeing an overlap between uh, the two sons of Abraham, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and now the two sons of uh, Isaac. <laughs> Sorry, just at lunch, so kind of sleepy. But so the um, so Abraham two sons, Isaac two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and then Isaac had Jacob and and Esau, and so. There is this rivalry. Uh, one is older than the other, but in both cases, it's the younger that inherits all the blessing. So uh, Abraham uh, passes on all his inheritance to Isaac. Uh, he actually sends away all his kids. So he has lots of other kids. He has a second wife, Keturah, and she has other kids. But he sends them all away from Isaac so that Isaac alone will receive all the inheritance from from. Abraham and really then the focus is on Isaac and Ishmael and both of them come to bury him to you know honor him when he dies as the two oldest sons and Ishmael um, goes on to be a great nation uh, God promises his mom tells Hagar he will have 12 kings come from uh, his line and indeed that's that's what happens with with Ishmael you know, so it gives us the names of these great uh, people great great kings 12 of them uh, 12 princes, he calls them, and they become nations, so they become great. You know, they, they become lines of, of um, families, I guess. Um, but Ishmael isn't the considered the son of Abraham, poor Ishmael. But it's, again, tracing um, that promise that God gives to the son, the son, the son. Beginning from Adam, you know, God says to Eve, you know, uh, yours, there will become this son who will end this curse that is because of the fall, um, being tempted by the serpent and the fall of Adam. But then one day, one son will come who will break this curse, who will re reverse this curse of death. Uh, and all throughout Genesis, what you're searching for is which is the son, which is the son that is to come. And so there is just one son at each point of time uh, who will inherit this promise and this potential of being the reverser of this curse. And so at this point of time, it's Isaac. And so the focus is on now on Isaac, the history and the generations of Isaac. Previously, it was Abraham. And now we're looking at Isaac. And now Isaac faces almost the exact situ situation that Abraham faced in the beginning. You know, um, Rebecca, his wife, was also... Um, uh, was also barren. Here it says in verse 21, Isaac had to pray to God, but then God heard his voice, his prayer, and then caused his wife to conceive. And within her womb, she has twin boys. But the way that um, God describes it to her, it's twin nations, two nations. And they're struggling within her, and she says, what's going on? Uh, you know, she Say, why do I live? It must be so painful within a womb to have these two kids almost fighting from even before birth. But Yahweh says it's almost like thinking of two countries that are at war. You know, these are two these two brothers who are at war with one another. And so he calls them two nations, 
two peoples, and they will be separated. And there is one who is stronger, talking about Esau, about Edom. But then there is this older one, the stronger one, will serve the younger. So similar again to Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is much younger than Ishmael,、uh, but Isaac is the one who receives this blessing,、um, and he's the weaker, I guess. You know, Ishmael had twelve sons. Isaac now only has one. Well, these two sons, sorry, but but only one will receive the blessing. You get what I what I mean.、Um, and so when they were、uh, born. That itself was an interesting story. The first one, Esau comes out red all over, all hairy, and then、um, when the younger one comes out,、uh, he calls on to his heel, and that's why he's called Jacob. Jacob's name sounds like heel, but the idea of grasping a heel—it's an idiom, a Hebrew idiom that means this person is a trickster or a deceiver.、Um, yeah, and so that's. The nature also of these two sons, one is hairy, one is tricky. Yeah, so Esau grows up true true to his name. You know, becomes a man of his of the field. You know, he hunts, he eats red meat, and therefore his dad, for some reason, likes that likes that manly man character of Esau, and also because I guess um, uh, Jacob. Um, Was、um, well, very very different. Sorry, I was thinking of Isaac. Isaac looked at Esau as his firstborn, and according to the rules of primogeniture, it's talking about how the eldest son will receive everything. We have that same rule in like Asian culture, Middle Eastern culture, whereby whereby the eldest will inherit all the responsibility,、uh, the greatest share of all the inheritance, and therefore. You know, has the greatest privilege. So Esau kind of like fits that bill. You know, he's a man's man. You know, he eats red meat.、Uh, but Jacob was almost the opposite in terms of his mannerism. He was quiet. You know, he lives in tents, always stays indoor.、Uh, but his mom loved him. So there,、uh, there's this favoritism going on. They love, but they have favorites in terms of who they love. Dad loves Esau. Mom loves Jacob. And the two of them、uh, have this rivalry going on. One day, it tells us there's this story、uh, of one day Esau coming back in and smells this stew that Jacob is cooking, and he says, "Oh, please let me have some of this red stew." And Edom is means red, and that's where he gets his name. He he smells this amazing stew, and Jacob says, "Okay, but give me your." Birthright, all this blessing that you inherit from being the firstborn, and Esau said, "You know, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me?" And Jacob says, "No, no, no. You need, you need to give it to me first. You need to swear it." And so he swore it to him, and he essentially exchanged it, sold his birthright to Jacob, and in exchange for some stew, some food. And that since that day, apparently Esau really. Regretted or despised or really hated that decision.、Um, I'm not sure whether regret was the case or rather he just despised the fact that、um, he stuck with this promise that he made to his younger brother. He felt tricked, I guess, true to to his name again as the trickster. Okay, so looking at all that, you know, what do we learn?、Um, I think we see dysfunction in this family. I think we see.、Um, Love causing, leading to rivalry, you know, brothers who become enemies, you know, blessing that turns into、um, kind of like、uh, this curse. You know, Esau hates this blessing that he has, and it's so tragic because you know, having kids that should be a happy thing, having two kids that should be double that happiness, but then what happens is when you start favoring one over the other, when you start. You know, making something good sound very, very bad. Then you almost twist that goodness that God has given you, and I guess that goes to show that、um, this kind of curse. You know, what what's this nature of this curse that's running down the human line because of the fall of Adam? It's not that things all become bad, but even in the best things, you know, things are spoiled. You know, even in the happiest times, there's sadness. So.、Um, 
we'll just focus on I mean we could go and look at um, Jacob uh, Isaac and Ishmael I need to get those two names right Isaac and Ishmael Jacob and Esau Isaac Ishmael Jacob Esau so let's just focus on the second pair Jacob and Esau um, <laughs> you know the fact that God gave them the children when she was barren you know, that was already such a tremendous blessing. That was an answer to prayer. That shows God's goodness. But then it causes this pain. You know, already there's this mixture of curse with blessing. And then the fact that she doesn't get one son, but two should be double that blessing. But then it causes this rivalry. And then the fact that there are two, you know, two very different characters, which means that, you know, Yes, of course, you know, dad loves the outgoing character and mom loves the inward character. It should mean that both of them should feel loved, but it causes them to feel split apart. And later on, we see that it causes even mom and dad to have differences between the two of them. And, you know, it's, it's just so tragic when you see this family dysfunction. But when you amplify this down the line, what you see is then the root cause of you know, wars, you know, two nations are fighting in your womb. This is God saying this is almost a picture of foreshadowing of why then you see countries fighting against one another. Why is it that you see, you know, huge fights, you know, that just get out of hand between political parties and or between, you know, people who you would think otherwise would be friends, could really have so many, so much in common. But it's because we aren't able to share a blessing we aren't able to handle good things and we are cursed at the core with just even the best of things being spoiled. And that's um, partly again that curse from the outside coming in, but also our sinful nature. You know, we aren't able to, that's why we don't deserve good things. I, I don't know, that there's like a meme that goes around. That's why, you know, we don't deserve that. Uh, we, we don't know how to handle it. We, we receive it and we just spoil it with with our own self-love, with our own self-pride, with our own you know, self-importance. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess. So that foreshadows this, uh, this, um, this kind of rivalry that's going to happen. But it also shows how God uses this rivalry to bring about his, his purposes. God himself says the elder will serve the younger. And so God uses this rivalry to cause this exchange of birthright of their own choice. You know, this happened. You know, Esau had the birthright. He, he was the firstborn, but he gave it away. And more than that, internally, he despised it. So, yes, on the one hand, there's God ordering the events, God giving them these natures, God, you know, causing these things to happen. But on the other side, there's also our own choice. You know, Esau decides to give it away for stew, for food. You know, all this blessing is so silly. Uh, and also Jacob, you know, kind of like tricks him, you know, Jacob kind of like sees and takes advantage of the situation. So there's that element of human responsibility and divine sovereignty working to, to bring together God's purposes of redemption. Um, yeah. Well, that, that, that's just my first impression looking at Genesis chapter 25. Now we'll see more tomorrow when we go to the next chapter. Uh, let's look at Matthew now. Matthew's gospel and this is chapter... 24. Jesus went out from the temple and he was going on his way. His disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these things, don't you? Most certainly I tell you, there will not be left here one stone on another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the, dis excuse me, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, Be careful that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are in trouble, for all this must happen, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, plagues, and earthquakes in various places. But all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to oppression and will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Then many will stumble and will deliver up one another and will hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. 
because iniquity will be multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. When therefore you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, I'll let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take out the things that are in his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are with child and to nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in winter nor on a Sabbath. But then there will be for then there will be great suffering. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been shortened, no flesh would have been saved. But for the sake of the chosen one, those days will be shortened. Then, if any man tells you, "Behold, here is the Christ," or there, uh, don't believe it. For there will arise false Christs and false prophets, and they will show. Great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the chosen ones. Behold, I've told you beforehand. If therefore they tell you, behold, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. Behold, he is in inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes from the east and is seen even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there is where the vultures gather together. But immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together all his chosen ones from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, from the fig tree, learn this parable: when its branch has now become tender and it produces, produces leaves, you know that the summer is near. Uh, even so, you also, when you see all these things, know that he is near, even at the doors. Most certainly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things are accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But no one knows of that day and hour, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ship. And they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Watch therefore, for you don't know in what hour your Lord comes. But know this: that if the master of the house had known in which, in what watch of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, also be ready, for in an hour that you don't expect, the Son of Man will come. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has set over his household to give them their food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord find, whom his Lord finds, doing so when he comes. Most certainly I tell you that he will set him over all that he has. But if that evil servant should say in his heart, "My Lord is delaying his coming," and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the day the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he doesn't expect it, and in an hour when he doesn't know it, and will cut him into pieces and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. That is where the weeping and grinding of teeth will be. Wow. Okay. Very doomsday, very end of the world kind of predictions coming from Jesus himself. You know, you see sometimes people on the pla with placards on the streets, these crazy people. End of near, end is near, end is near. Kind of like apocalypse coming, kind of uh, doomsday scenario, scaring everyone with these predictions. Uh, but notice, notice that um, 
Jesus is almost warning against that kind of scaremongering hype. He says, do not be alarmed. He keeps saying this, you know, don't listen to that. Or, you know, these things must happen. He's saying when you see exactly these kind of like hyped up scaremongering news, um, you know, don't be surprised, but rather keep on trusting in these words that I'm speaking to you right now. So what, what's he saying? So, well, what triggers all this is, you know, them walking past the temple, uh, impressive building of worship. It's meant to represent God's presence with his people and you're able to meet God there, offer worship to God there at this temple but jesus says it's all going to be destroyed you know not a single stone will be one on left one on the other and what this shows is just it's not just that this beautiful building imagine king's college building one day just being destroyed you know we'll be shocked but you know the iconic representation of god's presence itself being destroyed you know when kind of like if that one thing goes it means that's really the end of the world you know and for cambridge i guess it would be king's college chapel you know if that wasn't there tomorrow uh everyone would go oh boy you know that's 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 horrible that is the end of the world but if say um i don't know queen's college burned down no one would notice <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's meant to be. He, he, Jesus is look is, is pointing to the most iconic uh, representation of God's strength and blessing, and you know, of of a presence on the earth, and um, and so you know, is it, and so therefore, when he says that's going to be destroyed completely, not one stone on the other, that's when they go. Tell us when will these things be, and the end of the age. That's how they connect the do dots. Not just that this will be destroyed, but it will mean the, the end of everything. Um, it's worth saying as well that the temple was destroyed before. Uh, yeah, and so it had to be rebuilt. We have, we've actually been looking at that over the last couple of months, you know, going through uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so here we, we see that Jesus recalls those events in the past uh, to say that, you know, it's a foreshadowing of what will happen to this temple specifically at one point of time that's coming up but also at the end of time when there is a destruction of everything so just to notice that's going to be an overlap of two events one is a specific destruction of this temple jesus does point to this specific building and it does get destroyed that's why if you go to jerusalem today there is no temple there it, it was destroyed according to jesus predictions but also then Jesus uses that as a foreshadow of the end of time when there will be a final destruction, there will be final judgment, and then he will return the sign of his coming. So that's what triggers it, the temple. And again, Jesus says, be careful of rumors that will be untrue. You know, many will come and say that I'm the Christ. It's not them. Many will say that there are wars. It will happen. You know, and he he's so realistic about how um, people go crazy about the slightest amount of news of the end of the world and we've seen this again and again i'm not even talking about now we've seen it all our lives that any kind of indication of you know disaster or catastrophe people lose their minds and jesus is saying is talking about that kind of news that kind of hype that tries to kind of stir people into a frenzy but Jesus is saying all these are just the beginning. Uh, and the idea is that you should not be surprised. You know, don't be taken aback because I am telling you right now, Jesus is saying in these words, I'm telling you right now that all these things must happen. It's, it's just part of that process until that final end. Even when it happens to you personally, you know, Christians will be killed, you will be hated, and then and the point of this that is that many will stumble and they will even betray one another. And it sounds like such a horrible, horrible situation. But then Jesus is saying this is still part of the norm of living in a world that is in rejection, rejection of God. Many false prophets will arise and the love of many will grow cold. But he's saying despite all this, thing to you know, endure and then you'll be saved. Not lose your heads, 
not go crazy with speculation, but keep holding on to Jesus' words, keep trusting in Him, and keep looking forward to His return. And here, you know, as you know, you would think that therefore, endures means you know just keep praying, just uh, keep steady. But no, he he he. The contrast to this is the good news where we preach to the end of the world for a testimony of all nations. So it's almost hand in hand. There will be this hype and frenzy and and that causes people to fear, but then there is this gospel that causes people to be saved. So it's not just it's, it's a contrast between two types of news, both of which are are quite cosmic, both of which kind of like talk about God, but uh, one causes people to fear and lose their minds and lose their hope and their trust in God, but the other causes people to turn to God, to trust in God even more, to hold on to Him. Jesus says to endure to the end, and to preach this gospel as a testimony to the nations. So what Jesus is giving here is a scenario not just of events, but news of the events. What kind of news are you preaching as you see the end of the world? Are you preaching the bad news? You know, people are losing their minds. You know, they are betraying one another. Christians are being persecuted, which is true. All these things are happening. Jesus is saying they will. He's not saying that they won't. They will. But are you then, therefore, as a Christian who knows the good news? Preaching the good news, so there, uh, and then, and then he does talk about um, the end, but he uses the end that has come before. So this abomination of desolation was foreseen by Daniel during the first destruction of the temple, and so this is talking about a previous king, this guy called Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, and he came and he. He was really wicked, and in a sense that he destroyed the city and the temple. But he also went out of his way to insult God as he did this. He wanted to make a statement. He didn't just want to destroy it, but he wanted, he really wanted to make it unclean. And so what he did was um, he actually took a pig and he actually slaughtered it at the altar of God in the temple, and then psh, destroy everything. So the idea that's why it's this abomination. And then desolation—it's a desecration. That means unclean, but desolate. But desolation—that means destroying everything. So um, that's why Jesus is saying, when you see that, you know it's happened before. Therefore, it's going to happen again. And when you see the sign happening again, just run, just go. And here, I think Jesus is speaking about that specific event of that destruction of the temple. Remember, Jesus is pointing to a particular temple, is talking about a particular destruction, and Jesus is saying to to the inhabitants of Jerusalem at that point of time, "You need to go. You need to run." And this happened in AD seventy, so um, not too long after this, a few decades after Jesus gave this prediction. Uh, but Jesus is saying, in the same way that. Um, God showed mercy. Then, you know, there was that destruction. There was that, you know, horrible incident. But God cut short that period of of persecution. So God too will show mercy and cut short that period of persecution here. So uh, pray, pray for this. And unless those days have been shortened or cut short, you know, no one would have been saved. But as a result, you know, there were people who survived that attack. And then Jesus extrapolates this to the to the future, you know, for the sake of um, of those whom God has mercy on, uh, sake of those whom God uh, wants to save. And this is talking about physically and spiritually. You know, God doesn't allow the persecution to go out of hand. And we'll and when we get to Revelation, we'll see this again and again. You know, it always talks about the same period of time, this three and a half years, this forty-two months. That is essentially seven years cut in half. You know, forty-two months is three and a half years. And the idea is that it could have gone on for that full period of seven years,、um, but there's a symbolism in it being cut into half, three and a half years. And again, this three and a half years also comes from that period back in Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, and so that becomes kind of like a picture for the Jerusalem、uh, destruction, but also for the future when there will be that final judgment. It's saying that God will bring judgment, God will allow evil to go rampant, but God won't let it go out of hand.、Um, okay, all right,、um, and then you know the idea is that at this point of time. One of the reasons why Jesus prepares us against this kind of hype or fear mongering is that 
it will intentionally target those who know the truth. You know, there will arise false Christs, false prophets, so that they can lead astray, if possible, even the chosen ones. And so Jesus is speaking specifically to Christians, specifically to us, that you know, um, just I guess the fact that he says, "If possible," you know, "if possible," it means they're going to, you know, the devil is going to try his darndest <laughs> to lead us astray, and that's why it's so important, therefore, to 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 actually know your Bibles and to know Jesus and to trust Him is in in when you hear all this kind of uh, scaremongering and fear and hype, uh, because. Um, the point is to shake your faith. The point is to get you to abandon Christ and to turn away from Him. Um, yeah, and so again, you would expect Jesus, the one to say, you know, therefore, oh, run away and do this kind of. I says, no, don't, don't believe it, don't trust in it, you know, because Jesus says it will be obvious. What what this is talking about is here. Here are some people going on. Hey, this is some secret knowledge. If you need to go here in order to be saved, you need to do this in order to be saved, or because otherwise you'll be destroyed. But she is saying, when that ha- you know, on the last day, it will just be so obvious. You won't need someone to come to you with some special mo- message. It will be so obvious when it is the end. So, like lightning, if it's on one end of the sky, it will be seen in the entire. All, everyone will be able to see it. Or you know where there's a carcass, where there's a dead body in a vulture, you'll see the vultures. It'll be very, very obvious signs that everyone will have to see. You don't need someone to tell you. You'll be able to see it for yourself. Um, and so that's how Jesus pictures his coming. You know, sun, moon, darkened skies. You know, uh, stars falling from skies. It's a very cosmic, very big event that you know you will be able to see for yourself. Yeah. Uh, you you don't need some special interpretation for that, um, but I, paradoxically Jesus just say you do need to understand how this is going to happen. So Jesus just say learn from the fig tree. You know there are signs that shows that this will happen, and yet you know this. How do you reconcile that? This is supposed to be very obvious, and yet we're supposed to learn this special secret sign that of this fig tree. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Um, it's it's learning from his words. I think that's how I would take it from verse thirty four. Uh, this generation will pass away, but heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. So Jesus is referring, I guess, to everything in Scripture, everything he is teaching us right now. That um, the times when you feel as if you need to go onto Facebook or you need to look elsewhere to find um, the reason or interpretation of things. Just keep coming back to his words. Just keep trusting in it, and don't lose sight that the fact that Jesus actually prepared us for all these things. So yeah, I think the first part, just to just to summarize this, is that uh, it is obvious, and Jesus wants us not to be surprised. You know, uh, there will be all these kind of shock tactics coming about. There is going to be wars. It's end of the world, and Jesus is saying it will come, but because you know you will come. You'll be prepared because you know you will come. You'll be preaching the gospel. You won't be losing your heads. You won't be preaching bad news. You'll be preaching good news. You'll be preaching, calling people to repentance. You'll be telling them that there is salvation, there is forgiveness, and there is uh, Jesus, and there is you know there is this God who died for us on the cross. So that's the first bit. You know, don't lose your heads. But secondly. You don't know. <laughs> so first bit, you know that it's going to happen, so don't be surprised. But on the other hand, but in the second page, it says you don't know, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know the the day when this will come. You know, even the sun doesn't know this. It's kind of like the day when when uh, no, when the judgment came, everyone didn't know this, and so they were still doing their regular things in life. You know, doing their shopping, they're getting married up until the day, bam! You know, the flood came, and so why does Jesus talk about initially everything that you know, and then you shouldn't be surprised? But then there are things that you just don't know about when it will come, and the second part has to do with therefore constantly being faithful. The thing about knowing is that we use what we know so that we can put off being faithful. <laughs> Isn't that true?、Uh, it, that, and we've seen that with the Pharisees, with the chief priests, with the experts of the law. You learn enough so that you can kind of like skirt around the rules, so that you know I do this, and then therefore I I, I can get away doing this as well. But there are things in which God keeps us in the dark, so that we will be constantly, 
you know, leaning on him and trusting in him. Oh, wow, it's, it's snowing. Oh, that's great. Well, I, well, maybe it's raining. Hopefully it turns into snow. But yeah. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Yesterday I was doing this and I kept the, win the, the cur curtains closed and I didn't tell, couldn't tell it was snowing until after it happened and I finished the show. So yeah, it's great. Ah, yeah. Well, anyway, like, like the snow, you don't know when it's going to happen. So kind of like uh, when it does happen, you're prepared. You know, kind of like if you know that, you kind of know it's going to happen, but you don't know when, so you go out and you wear a jacket, that kind of thing. So faithfulness is being preparedness, is constantly trusting in Jesus and not taking advantage of the fact that it hasn't happened yet. So that's the parable then of this unfaithful servant. The servant doesn't know when the Lord is coming. My Lord's delaying is coming and therefore he takes advantage of the situation. He beats his fellow servants. He eats and drinks with drunkards. And then therefore, that's why, you know, the Lord uh, uh, comes when he doesn't expect. It's like those surprise inspections that you have at work. The point is that to make sure that you're constantly prepared, constantly, you know, being faithful, even when no one is watching you. And that's then therefore together the things that you know and things you don't know. The things that you know is so that you'll be prepared. When you hear these kind of rumors or these kind of out of hand things to go, yep, you know, Jesus already told me about that. You know, don't be surprised. Have you heard about this news, about this good news? But now about the things that you don't know, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing. It's therefore an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. You know, it's up to him, you know, to, to bring about judgment when he sees suit. You know, he is God, we're not. But also for our sakes, you know, otherwise, you know, our hearts are such that we will just take advantage of every situation and we will just, you know, not be faithful when we really should. And Jesus is saying, you know, use, don't use this as an excuse to delay faithfulness, but use this as motivation to constantly, constantly check yourselves, to constantly say, you know, am I being faithful now, even when it isn't yet the end of the world? Am I acting as if, you know, a Jesus is here, that I am serving him, that I'm being faithful with everything that he's given me. Okay, all right, so that's Matthew chapter 24. Let's move on, Esther chapter, oh, new book, Esther chapter one. Oh, this will be exciting. And let's stop reading. Esther chapter one. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus who reigned from India even to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Susa, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. He displayed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even 180 days. Wow. When these days were fulfilled, the king made a seven-day feast for all the people who were present in Susa the palace, both great and small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. The, there were hangings of white and blue material fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and marble pillars. The couches were of gold and silver on a pavement of red, white, yellow, and black marble. They gave them drinks in golden vessels of various kinds, including royal wine in abundance according to the bounty of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had instructed all the officials of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Mistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abakta, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the royal crown, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was beautiful. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by the eunuchs. Therefore, the king was very angry, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for it was the king's custom to consult those who knew law and judgment, and next to him were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, 
What shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to law, because she has not done the bidding of the king Ahasuerus by the eunuchs. Memucan answered before the king and the princess, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to just the king, but also to all the princes and to all the people who are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will become known to all women, causing them to show contempt for their husbands. When it is reported, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she didn't come. Today, the princesses of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's deed will tell all the king's princes this will cause much contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal commandment go out from him, go from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be altered, that Vashti may never again come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he shall make, is published throughout all his kingdom, for it is great, all the wives will give their husbands honor, both great and small. This advice pleased the king, and the princess, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to its writing, and to every people in their language, that every man should rule his own house, speaking in the language of his own people. Oh wow, um, so everything is about this king. Ahasuerus, you know, he's uh, he's having this celebration for 180 days and he makes a big show of it. You know, he he decorates his palace, you know, with blue and white material and all these kinds of pillars and um, very, very ornate, you know, decorations. The pavements are red, white, yellow, very beautiful, very ornate. And he also has lots of food. You know, there's this banquet, you know, and lots of alcohol. <laughs> I'm guessing what drinks, that's what drinks refer to. And golden vessels. So you can imagine lots of people having a 180-day rave, you know, in, in this, imagine the most posh hotel, I guess, you know, the, this palace with all the nobles and the free flow of drink and everyone's having a great time. And uh, he even has to have this law saying drinking was not compulsory. And you think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be better if it was compulsory that everyone had to drink? Uh, but it's kind of like those yam sing moments in your wedding. You know, yam sing is what we do during uh, Chinese weddings. And everyone has to toast and they go, yam sing, you know, that means drink. What does sing mean? Drink first, uh, <laughs> something like that. But the idea is if you yam sing, everyone has to drink. But here, you know, the king, usually when he drinks, everyone has to drink at the same time. But here, he wants them to have that freedom to be able to drink anytime they want. They want he wants them to have a good time, not feel as if they're forced to enjoy themselves. And he just wants to provide the means for them to celebrate. And Vashti is his queen. She also had her celebration for the women in her royal court. And so 180 days and then seven days of really tip-top, uh, lots of happy times, celebration and food and drinking. But on the seventh day, the king said, you know, bring my queen here. I want to show her off to my nobles because apparently she was very, very beautiful. It says here twice, um, she was very beautiful. But she says, nope, <laughs> no, 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 she's not going to come. And that really shocks the king. It shocks uh, everyone in the court. You know, the king was very angry and anger burned in him. And he says to his nobles, he has these seven eunuchs and these seven princes next to him, he says, what shall I do? What shall I do? What am I allowed to do? What do the laws allow me to do? And they all kowtow to him and say, you know, this queen has insulted not just you, but the whole country. Because word is going to get around, you know, that the king his wife refused the king the queen you know stood up to the king and therefore every wife is going to stand up to their husband and say oh this is going to cause trouble you need to do something about this king and so essentially um yeah so, <laughs> so the king comes out with this royal command uh to be written in the in the laws of the persian and the medes and he says here the reason why he has to write this instruction or put this into law like a commandment because it cannot be altered that means he decides this he can't change his mind anymore 
And he, what he says is that the queen can never see me again. Essentially, he divorces this queen for this one act of disobedience. He essentially says, "You will never see my face again." Essentially, banishes her from his court ever, ever again. And he can't repeal this anymore. He can't revert this command because it's written in this law of the Medes and the Persians. And he says, "Give everything that she has, her royal estate, to someone who is better than her." You know, trying to bring her down. And so it's published in like newspapers. You know, it's, it's made official. It's put on Facebook. It's put on the internet. You know, so that everyone can read it, and everyone can read it in their own language. You know, that means he really wants this to be official. He wants every person, every household, to get the message that you don't mess with me. I am the king. So yeah, so that's our uh, first character in the book of Esther. Uh, shows us the character of this king. Then you know he can do what he wants. Uh, he uh, wants to show off um, his you know power, not just to all the nobles and to all the peoples, but especially especially to his queen to show her not just that he's king, but essentially she's nothing. You know I can replace you at any point of time. Um, what do we learn from this? Well, you know, sometimes uh, people say you make rash decisions when you're angry, um, when you um, you know you lose your you know you get upset and therefore and that's what he does here. But it's also a rash decision when you're happy. You know, he's celebrating, and someone spoils his celebration. He's having this big show, and then this one thing kind of like spoils the show, and it goes to show how insecure this king is <laughs> in that sense. You know, uh, sometimes you wonder why is it that um, I don't know. Uh, you, you you think of some people who are very very successful and they go climb up the ladder ladder and they, you know, maybe they they are even respected and maybe they uh, they 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 even serve in church. You know, they're and, and then uh, they rise up the ranks and we say, oh wow, that that guy is amazing and you know he has really made it and I want to be like that guy. And then suddenly he does something crazy, like he runs off with the secretary, that kind of thing. And you know, the moment I say that, I'm sure that you can think of so many examples. That's like almost typical. You know, someone rising, rising up, and then uh, the. And I'm talking about the best kind of people. I'm not people who not talking about people who are sleazy or cheat their way to the top, but you know, really, really genuinely good people rise up the ranks, and then they do this really silly thing at the height of their success. And it's it go, just goes to show how enabling this kind of success and this kind of pride is, and it's worth then watching out for kind of brash decisions that you might make when everyone is telling you just how smart or how good or how successful you are, like the these princes and like these uh, eunuchs. Um, and I, you know, this can happen in ministry as well, especially you know everyone telling you, you know, what a what a good pastor you are, what a good leader you are, and you think that you can't do anything wrong, and then suddenly you do something that really shocks and it's something that is really, really because you think in your mind you think that you can't do anything wrong. Everyone has just been telling you how great you are, or how great you're, and no one should threaten that greatness. And you know, at this point of time, you know, you wonder if maybe someone should have just said, why don't you reason with the queen? Why don't you? You know, cool down for a day and then think about it later. And this was just very, very rash. Someone who had the power to do something and wanted to use the ex full extent of his power to kind of like take revenge, to cancel, to gaslight. You know, his, his own wife. And um, I think it shows just how dangerous it is to make all those brash decisions at the height of your success of your. Um, Approval of your popularity, because you can't reverse it. You know, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> if he wanted to, he can he can reverse it because he cannot be altered. But you know, God uses this. You know, this is just the beginning. God's going to use this to introduce Esther, um, introduce her into the courts, and use her also to save his people in this kingdom under this very um, ungodly king. Okay, so that's our introduction to Esther chapter 1. Let's go on to our last chapter, Acts chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with certain elders and an orator 
one Tertullus. They informed the governor against Paul. When he was called, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, "Seeing that by you we enjoy much peace, and that prosperity is coming to this nation by your foresight, we accept it in all ways and in all places, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness." But that I don't delay you, I entreat you to bear with us and hear a few words, for we have found this man to be a plague, an instigator of insurrections among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we arrested him. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, affirming that these things were so. When the governor had beckoned to him to speak, Paul answered, "Because I know that you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I cheerfully make my defense, seeing that you can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship at Jerusalem. In the temple, they didn't find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd." Either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove to you the things which of which they are now accuse they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that after the way which they call a sect, so I serve the God of our fathers, believing all things which are according to the law, and which are written in the prophets, having hope toward God, which these also themselves look for, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Both of the just and unjust. In this, I also practice always having a conscience void of offense toward God and men. Now, after some years, I came to bring gifts for the needy to my nation and offerings, amid which certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, not with a mob nor with turmoil. They ought to have, to have been here before you and to make accusation if they had anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what injustice they found in me when I stood before the council, unless it is for this one thing that I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged before you today. But Felix, having more exact knowledge concerning the way, deferred them, saying, "When Lysias, the commanding officer, comes down, I will decide your case." He ordered the centurion that Paul. Should be kept in custody and should have some privileges, and not to forbid any of his friends to serve him or to visit him. But after some days, Felix came with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was terrified, and answered, "Go your way, for this time, and when it is convenient for me." I will summon you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, also he sent for him more often and talked with him. But when two years were fulfilled, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to gain favor with the Jews, Felix left Paul in bonds. So, this guy Felix, interesting. Interesting guy, you know. He is this governor,、um, and he has this prisoner brought before him. This guy named Paul. On one side, all these huge crowd of people,、um, uh, chief priests, and you know the high priest is there. All the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem come up to appear before him in this court. He is this judge, and they even have this、uh, prosecutor Tertullus, who speaks to him in a very, very Flattering way, oh most excellent Felix. Oh you know we've prospered much under your leadership, you know, and you know,、um, you know we don't want to bother you, and you just hear us out. And very, 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 very flattering person. And so it's a big group of people, and you know today they will all be dressed in suits. You know they have and they have this very impressive、uh, lawyer representing them. And on the other side, one guy. Paul <laughs> in chains, and you know the thing is, Felix spends two years listening to this guy Paul. So yes, you know you have Paul here introducing his defense, saying you know actually everything they've they've brought charges against me. Essentially, Paul says,、um, 
it's just not true. You know, um, there's just no evidence for it. It's just hearsay. The fact whether I'm desecrating a temple, you know, where are these people who are saying this? They should be here. Or, you know, the fact that I had a mob, where they themselves can testify that I was, I was alone. And so Paul is speaking very reasonably, very clearly to him. And uh, by the way, you know, these guys are really sneaky. In verse 8, when it says, by examining him yourself, they are not saying, oh, listen to Paul and see what he's saying is, is reasonable. Examining means torture, you know, torture the truth out of him. But Felix, you know, to his credit, you know, it's kind of like taken with Paul. And he tells us why here, you know, Felix has a more exact knowledge concerning the way. And this might be more exact compared to, say, even the lawyer. He actually understands what Paul is going on about. And at this point of time, the way is synonymous with the Christian way. You know, it's, it's a way of referring to the Christian. And it's a really good way. I think, I think we should, you know, maybe popularize this rather than talking about, oh, what we Christians believe. But have you heard about the way? You know, this, this is a way of salvation. You know, this is Jesus says is the way, the truth, the life. So Felix has probably heard a bit of the gospel at this point of time. And here is his opportunity to hear it directly from like the number one uh, preacher of the gospel in the whole country. And so he says, you know what, you know, I'll, I'll listen to you again. And so he keeps going back to Paul. That's the interesting thing. He keeps him in jail. And he goes, goes back to him. And Paul tells him about, you know, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, meaning actually he had a lot to say. He, he didn't just tell him all the stuff to do with all these charges, but actually told him, what is it that Jesus has come to do? He's come to bring to us righteousness. He's come to call us to live a life in line with this way. And he's come to warn us and to deliver us and to save us from this judgment to come. And to the extent that Felix actually goes, whoa, this is too much. This is pretty serious stuff. And so he said, okay, enough, enough. You know, stop. <laughs> he tells, tells him to stop. And he says, I'll, I'll call you when it's convenient for me. And this convenience carries on for, let me see, two years. So Felix kept going back and forth to this personal evangelist. And I don't know who you consider as the best evangelist, best pastor that you have heard of or read or admire, or it might be your pastor in church. Imagine that you could speak to this evangelist and ask him any question on your heart, anytime 24-7 that you feel like it. Hey, Paul, what does what's God say about the angels? Or what did Jesus mean when he said about, you know, the destruction of the temple? You know, you could ask him anything and everything, any time of the day for two years but still not become a Christian, but still kind of like deny it and still, you know, be tickled by it, you know, be, be curious by it. You know, even his wife, Drusilla, you know, was a Jewish, you know, even she, you know, went to hear him speak, you know, that means the whole family went, you know, there's this guy, you know, he's something interesting to say, but still never actually come to the point of decision of faith. What does this, what does this say to us? But it says to you, you know, it's more than just having that kind of like information, access to all the evidence. But at some point of time, you have to act on it. You have, you have, you have, or rather, God needs to give you that ability to respond to it. Uh, well, both sides of the same coin. Either you have to respond, or God has has to give you the grace in order, or the power, or the spirit in order to do that response. But either way, Felix is the most evangelized person in the whole country, the whole world, by the best evangelist in these two years. Paul, you know, for all, you know, in two years, he could have started a new church. He, he could, God could have put Paul in anywhere, used him in any way. God put him in this jail to have an audience of one for these two years. It goes to show, you know, if you were Paul, you would be going, Am I wasting my time? God, this person isn't even coming closer to, to, to becoming a Christian. But no, Paul keeps on preaching. Paul keeps on telling him the truth. Because Jesus already told him, you know, he will use him to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, to the ends of the nations, to Rome, and to preach before kings and governors. And Felix is a governor. Goes to show to you, you know, what, how do you measure success in ministry? You know, is it having a big audience, having a big ministry, having people even respond and become Christians? Paul had zero <laughs> in these two years. No church, stuck in a prison 
preaching to a guy who is so stubborn, who keeps asking you all these questions, you know, could kill you at any point of time. And then at the end of the day, after hearing you, passes you on to someone else and leaving, and leaving you in chains, leaving you to rot and to die. You know, how do you measure success in ministry? You know, this is, this is it. God using Paul to speak to this one guy who isn't converted at the end of the day. But you know, the fact that it's here in the Bible means God is using this to speak to us right now. What about you? You know, I, I don't know if whether how much Bible you've read today, or maybe you've been following these, uh, these re readings. You've been reading a lot of Bible, and maybe you find it entertaining, maybe you find it silly or crazy. How much Bible does God need to speak to you for you to really say that Jesus is the Christ? That, you know, he really did come, he really did die, and really is now at God's right hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you persist in calling us to bow our knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. And please don't give up on us just yet. Please continue to speak to us. Please keep calling us back to you for our hearts, even my heart, is prone to wander, Lord. And bring us back such that we would love you with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strengths. Thank you for the gospel, this good news in the midst of so much fearful and bad news. And thank you even for the things that we don't know. We don't know when you will return. We don't even know how long we will live. But we know that Jesus is Lord. And we know that today, by turning to him, we will have eternal life. And today, you've given us enough to be faithful and to serve Him with all of our lives. Help us to do that today by your Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.